Hey everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things show. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is my co-host, Kevin Tovel. And let's see, we have got a great show for you today, but here's a quick note. We are not going to talk about Apple because of the timing of Apple's event. We consulted with them and you know what? They didn't listen to us. They didn't move the event. I mean, I don't understand. No, we record on a Tuesday and Wednesday is when Apple's holding their event and Thursday is when we do the podcast. So instead of us speculating and then being proven right or wrong... (laughs) probably wrong. We are just going to hold it till next week. So all your Apple news will be next week and we will opine at that time. I do hope that we see a lot of HomeKit stuff. I do too. I I have been talking to sources and they also hope that you never know at the last minute Apple has been known to pull things. So Mm -hmm. I'm hoping there's an update and we see some realistic, awesome, cool things. We had been told that September and fall was the time frame for that. So fingers crossed, everyone. Those very intelligent and connected people familiar with the matter say that there will be HomeKit. And it will be greatly improved. So mm. next week, we yep. will talk. Nothing but HomeKit is what we are hoping for. <laughs> Nothing but HomeKit. So, all right, on to the show. So let's get started with Nest outages. Uh, it wow. just happened. It just happened last night, the day before we are recording this show. And I was affected by it as were most other people because around 9 p.m. Eastern time on Monday evening, the Labor Day holiday here in the U.S., nobody could connect to their nest. I was in my app and it's like, uh, it's just churning and churning and churning. And then finally said, nope, can't do it. It turns out that uh, Nest was aware there was a service outage, and they worked on a fix for about three hours, and by midnight, everything was back, which is great and all, but this really irks me. And I, and I shouldn't complain because it's like, hey, first world problems, you actually have to get out of bed to go downstairs to turn the air conditioning up or whatever. I know, life is tough. The point is, this is what I've said for a long time. I worry about IoT devices that rely solely on the cloud. I don't like them for this very reason. That's why I went with that Insteon system and the headless server four years ago, five years ago now. I mean, it didn't matter if if the cloud services went down because all of my rules and everything was was still available locally and things just worked. Well, hold oh, on, I was so hold mad. on, hold what? on. All right, all right. Your nest would still work if you got out of bed and touched the dial, correct? Yes, but that, yes, yes, Okay, yes. no, I, I just, I want to make that clear. Ah, uh, okay. okay. No, you're absolutely right. The Nest itself still worked as a, we'll call it a uh, old school manual thermostat okay. in the fact that you could still go up to it, turn the temperature, adjust it, turn it off, do whatever. It was the ability to access it remotely, whether in the home or out of the home, that was lost, that the cloud service itself. You couldn't, you couldn't remotely connect to your Nest from a Nest app. But your Dropcam, you couldn't see your Dropcam stuff. Nope. So that, that is actually, that kind of made that device a little worthless. Probably a bigger problem, but I don't have a Dropcam, so I was obviously not affected by that, but you're absolutely correct. Okay, so keep and, going. And, and, and I wonder about the uh, smoke alarms. Um, the smoke alarms would still work as a smoke alarm. Mm-hmm. Like if mm-hmm. you set a fire, they would still beep at you, but remote access, like telling you like your battery's out or something like that, I'm sure would be compromised. Agreed. Again, these are not major problems that put us back in the stone ages. 
it's just you know the promise of the cloud as as being the the bridge for all things IoT. It's just not a perfect scenario, and and it's just irked me for the longest time because I'm like I kept saying this is going to happen someday. It's going to happen. How am I going to be affected? And boom, it happened. And how were you affected? You had to I get out of bed. Sweating. I had to go all the way downstairs. I know I don't want to complain because really, in the grand scheme of things, it's a small problem. Agreed. But it speaks to the larger issue of, of so much reliance on the cloud instead of having some type of hybrid type cloud slash local systems for IoT. It's true. And actually, with Smart Things, their latest thing that just came out, they actually put some local intelligence on it for that exact reason because the cloud does fail sometimes, either massively like the Nest system-wide outage, or even just locally, like your own personal internet can't be relied on. So Mm -hmm. makes sense. With Nest, I'm trying to think they don't really have, because of the way their system is designed, I'm not sure where they would put the brains. Because if you're thinking about having brains for a smart home system, Mm -hmm. you have to have a hub. A hub or, or a server or something that can um, still manage the devices in lieu of the cloud. Um, Although, with Google's new router mm-hmm. and its new fun Weave and Brillo, maybe they just pop that into, you know, you pop Weave or Brillo into any sort of router and that becomes your hub and they could talk to mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, I could see that, and I, and I like that idea as a secondary slash backup system. I don't, I don't want to sit here and say I need to run a Nest server in my house. I don't want that, but I do want some physical device that has those rules that can take over for a Nest or whatever the product may be when the cloud system breaks down. Because any of those systems need some sort of, basically you need like an ARM Cortex kind of chip in that because you, the microcontrollers that are inside like a Nest or any other kind of connected device probably isn't powerful enough to run all of those instructions is kind of what I'm thinking. I think that's fair. And I don't know that I want localized rules and storage and intelligence in all of my my actual devices. I like the idea that you were talking about a hub or put it into a router or something where, again, if the devices are pinging their cloud service and have some kind of outage, okay, the the hub or whatever the brains is, the local brain says, huh, well, that's a problem. I'm going to go to my localized rules now and I'll keep pinging the cloud. And when the cloud comes back, we'll switch back over to the cloud service. So to do that, though, you need standards. Ah, yes. The dreaded S word. Yep. So I like that. And while we're on the topic, I should ask you, speaking of the Google router, did you perhaps purchase one? Oh, the OnHub. Yes, yes, yes. So I I literally just before the show checked to see if it was available in the Play Store. I've been checking on pretty much a daily basis. It has not been in stock. However, also just before the show, I checked bestbuy.com and they do have them in stock at the normal $199.99 price. Could go to Amazon and buy an OnHub, but you pay $289.99 right now because of the markups, which is ridiculous. Don't do that, people. Please don't do that. Uh, so I do have one coming because I just ordered it. It will be here. I did not do expedited shipping, so it'll be here on Thursday when this podcast goes live, which gives us something else hopefully to discuss next week. All right. So hopefully we'll talk about HomeKit and maybe OnHub. Mm -hmm. So I did not, because Kevin is buying the router, I decided I did not want to buy the router, nor did I buy the handbag. So for for the few people who who asked me, who sent me emails like, did you buy the handbag or did you buy the router? And the answer is I bought neither. 
Um, that was a, that's a tough decision. I, I, I feel you there. I, I, you know, <laughs> handbags are very important. It would have, it was going to hold my MacBook as well. It, yeah. was, it was not just any handbag. If it was a connected handbag, I think you would have had it. Ah, yeah, with the integrated hotspot. Someone did send me, send that, tweet that at me. And I was or if like, you leave it behind, your phone rings or something. No, no, that's the tile. The tile thing. Yes. I, you know, I still you could need do to, that. I just need to bite the bullet and buy those because mm-hmm. I've been leaving stuff left and right. I need to put one in my water bottle. Mm. You know what? That's what I'm going to order. That is what I'm ordering. Tile. Tile okay. at the end of this show. Those, okay. those are the Bluetooth tags that remind you when you've left something behind for people who do not know. Yes, those are the Bluetooth tags. And they actually recently just got an update. So they actually have a louder alarm. And by golly, I need them. I I do. And best of all, they don't rely on cloud services. And they don't rely on <laughs> cloud services. Speaking of cloud services, yes. you actually posted something on Google+, Plus, which I saw because no one else posts on Google+. Plus. No, it's a ghost town. I, I, I tell my 100,000 plus followers over there, it's a ghost town. Wow, 100,000 plus. Wow, Kevin, yep. you are the lord of Google+. Plus. Oh, no, no, no. There are people that far more important than me that have millions of, of followers over there, which, you know, it's you, a ghost town. You and Larry Page. Uh, <laughs> all right. So you said that Google should buy if this, then that. And I thought that was a yeah. really fun topic that we should we should talk about. But first, we should tell people what if this then that is. You want to do the honors? Oh no, you do that because you are the IFTTT queen. Okay, so if this then that is a web service that basically connects your. It's actually any web service to any other web service or any device. So using the the kind of programming language, if this happens, then that happens. You can link things like your phone to your Dropbox. So if I take a picture with my iOS or Android phone, it then sends that picture to Dropbox. Or it could be something as fun as if the Cardinals score a point, then my hue lights turn red. All of these are actual recipes that I've created using (laughs) if this, then that. I have created in my time with the service probably dozens of recipes. It's super fun. I recommend it to everyone because I, I almost when people ask me what it is, I almost tell them I don't know if you know what an API is, but if this then that is almost like APIs for dummies. Yes, I would never use APIs because I'm always trying to explain it to people who are like they don't know what APIs are. Sure, sure. But yes, APIs for dummies is a great way to explain it. Thank you. This is why you should have explained it. <laughs> no, you did fine. I just you did fine. You did okay. Fine. So that's what ift is the shorthand for it. Ift. <laughs> right. So yeah, so that's the service. And they also have something they call do, like do Mm -hmm. buttons. And do's are like a single button that you press that makes something happen. So on my phone, I have one that turns off my bedside table light. It connects to Hue, Mm -hmm. a Hue lamp on my bedside table. And when I push that button, the Hue lamp turns off. I used to have one for my GigaOM Slack channel, where Mm -hmm. if I pressed it, it said, Stacy is away from her desk, but I no longer have that because I no longer have my GigaOM Slack channel because there is no longer a GigaOM that I work at. <laughs> the do button's kind of interesting because it, it's an easy way to create one-touch shortcuts for your recipes. Just tap a button and whatever you want it to happen, happens. And the nice thing is, and this is what led me to my comment about Google should buy them, is they have brought the do button, they being if this, then that, they brought the do button to Google's Android Wear watches. So now you've got quick one-touch shortcuts for whatever 
recipes and things you've set up. And some of the examples that the If This Then That team provided, just to illustrate this, with the Do button, you can, for example, set your Nest thermostat to the perfect temperature, assuming the service is up, that is. You could block off an hour, your next hour is busy in Google Calendar, so nobody will you know, bother you or notifications don't come in. Going on the, the Slack bit, you could ask colleagues on Slack if they want coffee. So the pre-programmed buttons made by software and and if this then that recipes and you know an android wear watch is perfect for that i just thought it was a really really smart place to put these i mean on the home screen of your smartphone is good too of course but the more i thought about it i'm like you know we're past the point where smartphones are just you know functional connected devices where we go into an app go do something and then we're done then we go into another app we do something we're done we want these things to start reacting to our needs we want these things to just do more and yet we don't want the complexity of having to program to them to do more. It's really not complex to do that with the do button. And I'm like, Google, what a huge opportunity you have right here to, to advance the smartphone by integrating if this, then that right into Android natively. Exactly. And actually, in talking to Lyndon Tibbetts, who is the CEO of IFT, he actually wants to do, oh man, do the do. He <laughs> wants to integrate the do button into apps. So... It's very easy to like right now with Android, I think Android and iOS, mm-hmm. you can actually, there's a do for photos and a do for notes. So when you take a photo, you have a do button that will automatically like when you take the photo, it automatically does something with the photo. So you hit the button and it automatically like sends it to Dropbox or automatically Post it, it to Instagram it. or yeah. tweets it. So that kind of like, again, one button support that you can build is so easy and powerful and customizable. And you can imagine that all over your phone with anything that you, any app that you use. And that's, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. it really is. And they have over 160 channel partners right now and they span the web. They cross over to physical devices. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is nuts. I love it. Works and with the Echo. It works with the Echo, although the triggers are a little limited there, and the triggers are limited on kind of all of the things. But when you think of companies, like Google would be great because they're open. Like Apple could also buy it and then just like shut it down and only use it with the Apple ecosystem, kind of like Apple did with Test Flight, right? Mm. That would be that would be sad. That would, that would be, be sad. sad. So Facebook would be another good buyer, actually, because mm-hmm. Facebook's really trying to kind of control the mobile web and build out this amazing walled garden kind of, of really fast, speedy web services. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see Facebook being a good buyer for if this and that. I don't know, but I really think, and of course, you know, if this and that would love to go it alone, but mm-hmm. it's a really undervalued service. And maybe it's because there's not a lot of people using it, but I think thinking about it as a, as a service with users, as opposed to thinking about it as this amazing back end for the next generation of like, I guess like this underpinning or a service that underpins the entire mobile web is like a better way to think about it. I completely agree. I mean, we've talked about if this than that many times before, but it's still to the mainstream person, I think it's still very esoteric. I don't think it's very commonly known and yet it provides tremendous value with such little investment. And that's why I'd like to see, as you said, you know, focused on, on users. And I think a Google could really push that 
you know, there's lots of other potential buyers, as you said, um, that where it would be a good fit. Right now, I think the best fit would be Android, Google Android. All righty. So there we go. We have we have just sold off if this and that. Um, and if you haven't tried it, please go try it because I guarantee you, like even my even my daughter and I, we have fun creating if this and that recipes. It's just addictive. Yeah, we get commission if they do buy, right? Um, yes, because because there's so many things for sale. <laughs> I, I do think they actually have a paid service now, but I'm not yeah. sure what it is. Um, all right. Let's see. Before we go, we should probably talk a little bit about some enterprise news that is worth talking about, which is mm-hmm. last week at IFA, which is like, is it like the CES of Europe? Yeah, it's actually bigger than CES, if I'm not mistaken. It's like the largest type trade event of that kind in, in the world. In the world. Yeah. It's huge. So ARM and IBM announced a partnership. They actually have had a partnership for a while. They just basically took it a lot deeper. And then IBM also announced some kind of tweaks and add-ons. You know, IBM is very good at like basically taking news that it's already announced and then just adding a little (laughs) bit of some extra tweaks and Phillips to it and being like, yep, now I'm going to make it bigger and put out another press release. So basically what, what they did is... IBM has a backend cloud product that it calls IoT Foundations, and it's part of its Blue Matrix cloud product. And what this is, is you basically send all of your IoT connected device information up there, mm-hmm. and it's got data analytics, it's got device management, compliance kind of stuff, all of the stuff you basically need to like have all this device data in the cloud. And what ARM has done is they've taken their embed OS, which is a real-time operating system for their microcontrollers and any other kind of ARM-based microcontroller, and they've connected the two. With a line of code or two, you can basically connect anything running embed OS to IBM's IoT Foundations cloud. Mm -hmm. It's basically an easy way to connect any device to IBM's cloud. And that is important because... Well, I'm thinking analytics. I'm thinking big data and analytics because that's where IBM is really pushing the boundaries these days. You know, look at the Watson platform, for example. And I don't know the details of their IoT Foundation's cloud product, but I'm guessing that it has to do a lot with reviewing all the data coming in from these devices. It does. It lets you review all this data. It lets you put it in a safe place because you you know you don't want all this data going anyplace like just any old cloud. It runs on Spark, which mm-hmm. is the real-time processing engine the Hadoop guys came up with. It's not necessary. I mean, you could send it over to Watson if you wanted to, but mm-hmm. it's a secure place to analyze all this data. And basically, it's it's kind of like idiot-proof. So if you're like the VP or the CTO of a company that's like making washing machines and you're like, hey, we got to really get a connected washing machine thing going. This is an easy way to say, I've got a bunch of ARM-based chips and sensors. I need to put those in my washing machines. I need an easy way to get all of that data from those sensors up into a secure cloud. And, you know, nobody gets fired for buying IBM. I'm going to send it all to IBM's cloud. Mm-hmm. This is an easy way to do it. And that's what this is. And it's not a way to like build a connected manufacturing center operation. You know, this right. this isn't like, I'm sure IBM has products for that. Mm-hmm. I, I actually know they do. 
But this is just a simple way to get your products connected. If you're like a big name company that's that doesn't want to spend a lot of time reinventing the wheel when it comes to the internet of things and building a connected product. Mm-hmm. I think IBM, among others, uh, obviously, IBM is really well positioned here to you know provide device intelligence and similar data and analytics to these device makers, which will eventually, hopefully, make them smarter. So I can't say I'm surprised by this. No, this is a long time coming. Now, there are startups in the space. There's companies like Ayla Networks. It's a venture-backed startup. There's also Electric Imp is kind of in the space. They mm-hmm. provide a cloud service as well. There are older companies like Exita that was bought by PTC. They're a little bit different, but the offerings sound a bit the same. And the other thing to note is that this is using ARM's embed OS. Prior to this, most companies that you buy microcontrollers from, they usually have their own proprietary operating systems. Mm -hmm. And ARM's embed OS was introduced last year around this time to kind of, I guess, defragment that market would be a way to think about it. And it will become publicly available. Arm told me that it will become publicly available at TechCon this year, which is in November. So we are all waiting for the public version. Right now it's in a beta version that you can download and play with. Mm -hmm. So that is is kind of, this is a little bit more enterprisey, but it's really important. Oh, yeah. So... This is, this is kind of like IBM's big play here. And it's not exclusive. ARM will work with other clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, IBM will work with other RTOSs. So kind of keep an eye out here. This is a pretty big deal for both of these companies. And that is kind of the big enterprise news there. I think we should probably skip ahead to our guest, which this week is Michael Wolf. He is actually a former colleague of ours. Yeah. And he is an analyst. He hosts a podcast and he is also hosting a smart kitchen summit. So I asked him to come talk about the connected kitchen and specifically the tiny bit of news that we heard when we learned that Amazon was firing a lot of hardware people, which is that it has a secret project called cabinet in its lab 126 unit. that is a, a connected kitchen thing. So stay tuned to learn more about Amazon Smart Kitchen Goals, and actually just a bunch of really cool connected kitchen products. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today I have brought a special guest. It is another podcast host. This is Michael Wolf, who is the host of the Smart Home Show, so you guys should check that out if you enjoy him. He is also a chief analyst at Next Market. He is really, really super smart when it comes to the smart home and actually other things. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so good to be on the show. I'm a fan of the show. I'm a fan of Stacy. Uh, I've been I've known you for what five years now. We we should let people know we work together at Gigom too. So. Yeah, we we used to, as opposed to just like randomly meeting under a bridge somewhere. <laughs> um, yes, we used to work together at Gigom, and before that, man, I used to call you like like a decade ago about like when you were at like ABI research and like I interviewed you about like Bluetooth and stuff. I don't know if you remember that. At this point I have gray hair and I've been following this stuff way too long. So there's a few of us have been following this stuff forever. I'm one of them. Yeah. So we're old, but we're not bitter. We're excited. We're friendly. And that, that is why we're so like jazzed to be here and talking about smart kitchens. I'm just going to warn everybody listening right now. 
About a month ago, you guys may remember I had a chef on the show talking about connected ovens and connected cooking. And if you guys aren't into that thing, you might not be excited about this show because we're going to talk about that same sort of topic again, but this time with the added news hook of Amazon and its plans for something called Cabinet. Mike, what do we know? Well, we know that Amazon likes to spell cabinet with a K. Like the Kardashians. Yes, yes. And this is something that showed up in an article, I believe in the Wall Street Journal, and it was almost an afterthought. It was an article about how Amazon at Lab126, which is their hardware group for all the things like Amazon Fire, uh, the Fire Phone, etc., it was about the main focus of the article was about how they were laying off a big chunk of the people who were responsible for the Fire Phone because that, by and large, being the Fire Phone, it crashed and burned. But apparently, there's there's something else they're working on called the cabinet, which is called or in the article is called a smart kitchen computer or a kitchen computer. And so with that, it got me to thinking about what this thing could be. And so I wrote a post about it for Forbes as well as my own uh, my own blog and. That's what I'd love to talk to you about, you know, just speculating about what exactly a kitchen computer from Amazon could be. I know, because like when I saw that, you actually were the first person I thought of. I was like, oh, Mike's <laughs> in Seattle. Maybe he has, he has news, although Lab 126 is not in Seattle. But when I think of Amazon and their kitchen computer, I actually think of the Amazon Echo, which sits actually on my kitchen counter and we use to control... To me, it's like our, our calendar. It is our question and answer. It turns on our lights and does all our stuff downstairs. So that, to me, is our kitchen computer. It orders, it keeps track of my to-do list and my grocery list. So I'm like, what on earth would my kitchen computer actually do? What else do I need it to do? And you, you had some ideas around kind of shopping lists and even kind of thinking about food prep and recipes that I thought were kind of, I don't know, crazy. Shall I, <laughs> dare I say crazy? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm the crazy analyst, and that's my job to come up with crazy ideas. And you know what's interesting in your comparison to the Echo is it it actually sounded a lot like an Echo. You know, to kind of just quote the, the article, it basically says the cabinet will be designed to serve as a hub for the internet connected home and take voice commands for tasks like ordering merchandise from Amazon. Well, guess what? Can't you do that with the Amazon Echo? So I thought, well, maybe it's a souped-up Echo, or they're going to do something more with it and integrate all these different efforts that they have. I also think that they'll have a screen on it. I mean, one of the things that the Echo doesn't have, it's a largely a headless device. It's kind of almost meant to act like a router in the sense, even though it is a kind of a voice interface. But I think with a kitchen computer, you probably want a touchscreen and an ability to bring up recipes and kind of explore the world of food a little bit. So I think that's one of the aspects of it I think will have that differentiates it from the Amazon Echo. Okay. So a screen, I totally, cause I, I will say that I kind of wish I could fling my recipes onto a screen, not onto my Echo, but I wish my Echo could actually read recipes to me as I'm cooking and kind of slow them down for me. So I could be like, Hey, Alexa, I don't want to say it too loud. So people's echoes don't wake up, but Hey, what's next in my process? And she could say, you know, add two spoons of sugar. But the other thing that I thought was really cool that you had, had in there was that it would likely use the Dash replenishment service. And I'm not a huge fan of Amazon's Dash buttons that you press the button and it automatically orders one thing for you. But I do like this idea of having a replenishment service that automatically detects when you're out of things and orders them. So let's talk about how something like that might be integrated. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, shall we call it maybe a Dash 
bored. Sorry, that was terrible. That was but, terrible. <laughs> but I can imagine it being a central clearinghouse for different sorts of Amazon Dash replenishment services. I mean, I think, you know, if we step back and what maybe look at what Amazon's vision for the home is with with Dash is they want to basically automate reordering for all the consumables in the kitchen and beyond. And, you know, the problem is with the buttons is I know you and I probably don't want a lot of these different glue-on buttons that are going to be sitting everywhere. And if you start to integrate Dash, which is the bigger vision, I think, with Amazon Dash Replenishment Services, is integrating Dash into all these different appliances. How are you going to control it? If it's if you have one device from Whirlpool, you have another from LG, and you have something from Samsung, You know how are you going to view all this on one thing? Well, you could use an app. I mean, that, that's probably like the, the lower friction route and maybe the easier route, just have a Dash app that kind of centralizes all this. But, you know, Amazon probably wants to go even further than that. And so I think that what the kitchen computer, it could be a physical manifestation or kind of a physical device that manages all that. And so it'll incorporate hooks into all these different devices. It'll uh, have features and and kind of dashboards that allows you to kind of monitor everything you've ordered. And I think that's just one aspect of it that I think could be an interesting one. Okay. Now, I wonder if it would be similar. Are you familiar with the Haiku device? Yes, I am. The CEO of Haiku is coming to my event. That's excellent. We'll talk. You are eager, my friend. We'll talk about your event. <laughs> so Haiku is kind of a meld of like the, the shopping list on the Echo and maybe the Dash replenishment service because the shopping list is just, I give it a list, right? I say, you know, add wrapping paper, add milk, and it does that in the app. Nothing else happens. Haiku has these kind of fun partnerships with, they're mostly high-end grocery stores in other countries given to understand they're going to happen here, but I could say add milk to a haiku if I were in France or the UK, and it would actually add milk to my list. And it also conveys that order to a grocery store. And then I can either go pick it up later in the week or it will be delivered to me. And so if you think about that as a replenishment service, as opposed to like having a special container that has a sensor on it that automatically lets Amazon know that I'm out of milk. And this is a perishable, so it's a terrible example. Change it to dog food. That kind of gets kind of interesting. I'm sorry, Rob, I probably just killed your business right there. (laughs) So I don't know. That was another one of your kind of cabinet ideas that I thought was interesting. And then you talk about this idea of cabinet being the physical manifestation of the kitchen operating system, which I was that like, sounds terrible when you say it. <laughs> well, it sounded like, like a call to arms that I was like, dang. And then I was like, wait a second, what the heck is that? What, it, <laughs> why does my kitchen need an OS? What is, what is that going to entail? So I wanted to kind of get some thoughts from you there. Well, I think that there are a number of like startups, and this goes beyond Amazon, who are creating point devices. And I think the initial reaction to some of these devices be these, you know, these connected scales or these other things that maybe can connect into these different white goods is the white good manufacturers say, well, this is great, but let's have it kind of work together and rather just something that plugs in. So I think if you look at what Orange Chef is trying to do, I think they're maybe moving down that path as well. I think, you know, Haiku is interesting. Haiku to me is more like an arms merchant that can be a competitor to everyone who is in Amazon. But I just think it, rather than having a bunch of different things that don't work together, Amazon wants to be, kind of be the central point which all these different things in the kitchen work together. And so they're laying the, the foundation with the kind of the services and the APIs with Dash, um, with Amazon Fresh. 
and, and some of these other efforts like Alexa, which is going to be the voice interface for these, if you could bring those all, all together into one device and then they'd go out and do partnerships with all these white manufacturers as well as uh, some of the, the brands. So if you look at the Dash button, that's very much a strategic rollout and they've chosen some of the biggest consumable manufacturers in the world, right? So, you know, whoever those are, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, those are very strategic partners. So I think they're giving a taste of what a Dash embedded world can feel like with the Dash button to these brands. And then I think they're going to reel them in hopefully over time, at least if you're Amazon, and say, well, we have this bigger vision. We're going to have this kitchen computer. You want this service and this replenishment service hooked into your your into your brand. And I'm sure that a lot of it's going to be around a data story. I mean, that's, I'm sure, like what their vision is to relay these this kind of brand data to the, these brands. But I just I think that rather than having all the stuff piecemeal, they want to bring it together in one unit. Okay. So I'm picturing, I like this. So, because I kind of break up the kitchen, the kitchen story into, maybe it's not a story. Maybe it's my tasks. I break them up into planning, prep, cooking, and consumption. So on the planning side, I've got my kind of recipe apps. My prep, I've got things like the drop kitchen scale, orange chef, the countertop kind of stuff. Cook, I've got June. I've got whatever other kind of cooking devices there are. And then consumption, I've got things that even goes so far as like my fitness pal and even things like health kit with my data. So on top of all that, I'm trying to think of the things that need to run across all of that. So I would also throw in storage. I mean, oh, I think, okay. you know, one of the things you have is like, obviously refrigerators, you have other guys who are making smart containers uh-huh. um, that I think are interesting. And I think somewhere in there, you'd slot in replenishment and, and purchasing, which I think is maybe along the lines of consumption. But I think Amazon's thinking all the way from, I have this uh, need for consumables. Um, I have this planning process I do for cooking. Um, I have this consumption around food and I, you know the, the impacts of health, et cetera. I have this storage of it. And if you could tie all those together, I think that's the big vision. Got it. Okay. And I think what ties those together is data around food, right? Nutrition. Recipes are kind of a way, like today the, the recipe is almost the OS, right? But that's not digitized in a way that's that's friendly, right? And food is not digital, so... Okay, this is fun. I'm thinking about this. And we'll be able to think about it more because you have this kind of fun show coming up November 5th in Seattle. It is the Smart Kitchen Summit. I was going to say show, but it's the Smart Kitchen Summit. It is, let's see, we can find information about it at www.smartkitchensummit.com. Excellent domain right there. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, and I think, did you have a discount for our readers? I did. IOT pod is the discount code. You can get a 15% discount. Awesome. And you've got some great speakers there. Um, you've got the president of William Sonoma coming. You've got Rob from Haiku. You've got people from June. You've got me. I'm coming. Let's see. Who else do you that's, have? That's probably the most exciting part for me. That's it is. It's one of the most exciting part. I'm, I can't wait to see you. And I can't wait to see Chris, uh, Chris Albrecht, our friend, who's going to be the MC. There you go. But you've got actually some great people. You've got, oh, you've got Jarden, um, someone from Jarden who makes the crock pot. The connected crockpot. The connected crockpot. I'm going to ask him about my refrigerated crockpot. I've spoken to them before about this. They are still not making it. it. Must not be a good idea. I don't know why. But while we are on this topic, I would love to ask you: What are some of the kind of 
other companies that we should be excited about in the smart kitchen? Where else should I be looking for good ideas? I know that there are some startups making these point devices that we've kind of talked about, but who else is thinking big about this? Well, I would say that, you know, I made this comparison to people to kind of show them where, where my thinking is. I mean, when you look at 10 years ago, we were all excited about the reinvention of the television. And, you know, we were just at the kind of the beginning of this revolution that un- has unfolded before our eyes over the last decade where, you know, 10 years ago, it was all through a cable box. But we knew if we could get internet to the TV, it was a massive potential opportunity for disruption. A 50, you know, whatever the TV market is, $50 billion. 10 years later, look at it. Where we are. Netflix is, is the largest paid TV provider in the U.S., you know, all this conversation about disrupting the television. I think we're at that phase right now where we were 10 years ago with TV. We're right there with food. And as I say to people, you know, everyone eats the food and the grocery and the restaurant business. And, and, and just that total market is, is a much bigger market, probably exponentially bigger than TV. So I think it's really exciting. And you could just go along all these different pockets of innovation. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff that people have heard of, like the scales, et cetera. But I'll give you one example of a company that really is exciting to me. It's a company called Teforia. And they're a company that is trying to reinvent something that's been people have been doing literally the same way for a thousand years, which is brew tea. Um, you know, I love tea, but it is the most simple thing you could do: drop a bag of tea in hot water. And how can you change that? And I was very skeptical before I talked to them. And so, why would you change it? Well, let me tell you. So, say you you have tea you love, but you can only drink it before five because otherwise you're going to be up all night. Well, with Tafori, you could say, well, I want to do a nighttime brew of this tea. And I want to reduce the amount of caffeine. I can do that. Let's turn this knob. Oh, by the way, I really think that antioxidants are healthy. Um, I'm getting to that age where I think it's going to you know, make me live longer. Let's turn up the antioxidants. And you could do all this with the Teforia Brewer. You can just change it and kind of make it taste different. You can accent, kind of turn up certain accents and notes. And that to me, for I've been diving to the world of tea lately, and there, it's a massive community. There's like tea conferences, and there's just these tea enthusiasts. And I think if you start telling them about this, there will be some people who are skeptical but I think there are some people who would be really excited about this. So I think that's one really kind of interesting example of a, a company that's trying to reinvent something that's been done the same way forever. Okay. No, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about that, and I'm like, okay, yeah, change the way I brew tea. Some people will argue that that is just kind of mechanizing a process that maybe doesn't need to be mechanized. Now, I guess this is an area where you see a lot of gimmicks. Like, to me, cooking is something that has is fundamentally unchanged in a lot of ways because, you know, you heat something over a fire. Like thousands of years, we've, we've been heating, we've been chopping things up into various cuts or bits and heating them over fires. The way we heat them dictates how they end up tasting. So fundamentally that hasn't changed. And a lot of kind of cooking in devices and innovations in cooking have been based around gimmicks. Like, you know, a lot of people have like, George Foreman grills, or actually that's a pretty good gimmick, but you know, we've all seen the, what is that thing that makes you the, the, the connected meat thermometers like those, like, you know, well, adding Wi-Fi or Bluetooth on something and, and kind of making that a device, less, I agree is a gimmick. Less that actually a connected thermometer can be really helpful, especially if it's accurate. But I was thinking like maybe vessel, like a <laughs> something, something that's, you know, like a, a $200 glass that tells you what you're drinking or how many glasses of water you've drunk. Although I, I would argue, you know, that is something that has been, you know, widely panned, but I, I'm actually something that someone that finds that really intriguing. And I'll tell you why. So, you know, sure you can look on the can as Stephen Colbert said and see what's in it. But what if you're someone who has like a very specific dietary need? Um, you, you know, you're someone that really needs to closely monitor what you're taking in over the course of a week or, or a course of a month. 
that is very hard to do just by trying to transcribe what you're drinking as you go if, and you're someone who travels. So oh. if you had something like this that can do that, I think that's that's hugely valuable. And I am sure not against the technology. Right. I am not against that. And I'm actually really excited about passive data collection. I am panning it, the idea because they're very opaque about how they do it. Right. And so whether or not it's it's I'm best, skeptical that that's whether true. or not their their uh, molecular sensor works. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, um, about them is they have a weight sensor as well as a molecular sensor. The big, I guess, mystery box, kind of the unknown, is how their molecular sensor works. But I think if it does work, whether or not you know, if it's not them, if someone else can get that, I think that's hugely valuable. I think that is valuable. I don't know if it's necessarily consumer technology at the beginning, but yes, yes, I'm not against that. I'm I'm just kind of is that the right consumer market device. Yeah, I think most of these technologies are not consumer technologies at the beginning. They're they're like rich people technologies for the first three years. I mean, look at the June oven, right? I mean, you're talking about $1,500 for a basically what looks like a toaster oven. It's much more complicated than that, but it's something that is the size of one. But that is something that is not going to be mass market. But let's go to the next generation, to the next generation. Another example is uh, the Pico Brew, right? So the Pico Brew is a fifteen dollars or $2,000 device. It's still fairly big, and my wife laughs at me when I say I want a Pico Brew in my house because uh, it's still big. Wait, you should tell us what a Pico Brew is because many oh, yeah, of us yeah, are yeah. like, what? What is a Pico Brew? So a Pico Brew is a home beer brewing appliance, and it's they're basically taking IoT technology and applying, and applying the science to beer. And what's interesting about it, let's just step back about you know, kind of the, the product evolution for a bit. What's interesting about that is – you know, home brewing is something that is widely variable. People have been doing it for a long time. They're enthusiasts. But one batch to the next, you can't really make it, you know, you can't really say with any degree of certainty it's going to taste the same. And if I give my my buddy my recipe in Austin, I send it over the internet, you know, chances are that he can't do it the same unless you replicate it using technology like this. And there's, you know, there's a technology called Beer XML. So you talked a little bit about this kind of idea of data, which is really interesting. There's actually data and kind of frameworks around getting beer recipes really right, where you can scale up to like brewery-sized beer brewing down to like, you know, half a gallon. And you could just scale it up or down. So I think applying technology like that is really interesting. And it, it does something that has never always been done before. And there's other guys like BrewBot as well. You haven't really been able to brew in the home cost-effectively using technology and replicating really good recipes until now. Okay. I'm like, it's like a beer OS. No, that would be what runs your Pico Brew, a, a beer, A beer schema, I guess. A beer or, schema. There we yes. go. Uh, well, that's that's awesome. And I can't wait. Are the Pico Brew guys going to be They're going to be there. And I'm trying to get them to bring a lot of beer, too. Well, of course. Although <laughs> Pico in and of itself implies small. So not as small as Nano. Or, or maybe that's smaller. Well, yeah, it's not quite nano brewing. It's I don't know what's the difference between nano and pico. Both imply small, but anything compared to like you know Sierra Nevada is small, but well, enough probably to give us give us a nice buzz. There we go. I don't <laughs> know. Actually, I can't drink a lot of beer. I was going to say I can drink a lot of beer, but I really can't. I, I will save my bravado for another another beverage. Okay. Well, I think we're out of time, but I'm really enjoying this. So I cannot wait to visit your conference. And before we go, I want to get you. Really fast, big trends. Give me, let's see, two big trends that we should be watching for in the kitchen. I think, and this is an overused term, democratization of technology that was really only used in professional kitchens is coming to the consumer market. A good example of that is, is you know, there's two or three connected sous vide makers or sous vide makers in general, whether or not they're connected. That's something that really didn't exist 
three or four years ago for consumer price points. I use one. I'm making better steak than I've ever made before. I can make. I've made pudding with it. Stacy, if you haven't tried one, you should try it. It's really fun. Oh, you're inviting me to try the pudding because I love pudding. I'll make pudding for you with my sous vide cooker. Yes. And I think this, you know, you alluded to the the kind of the fusing of of data and cooking. I think you know this idea of taking health kit data um, and and allowing us to really understand where we are um, in our kind of in our day and our hour and more long term, and having that feed into what we buy and feed ourselves. I think is going to be really important. Now I don't think anyone's really cracked that. I think Apple's trying to lay some foundations, but I think that'll be a really interesting trend to watch. I would like to see big brands actually start to push nutritional data, their data, actually to consumers. I would like to see them get on board, maybe through APIs and starting to release some of that a little bit. So I'm not the one laboriously, you know, <laughs> typing all this into my app, only have my app crash. And then I'm like, ah, now I've got to do it again. So that's my hope that big brands will start to realize that there's a lot of value and there's probably even some advertising opportunities actually there. So we'll see. Well, Mike, Thank you so much for coming on the show. I cannot wait to see you November 5th in Seattle at the Smart Kitchen Summit. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see if we ever see the cabinet. What are the odds, do you think, on the cabinet? You know, I know that Amazon has done projects that they've killed. Um, You know, I've talked to folks who have been behind some of those projects and that never made the light of day. I have a feeling this, you know, if I were to put odds on it, it's probably, you know, over 50% we'll see something. But uh, who knows? It's, it could be something they're just playing with and they kill it. All right. Everyone, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. 